You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. There's a great TED Talk that I've watched a couple times now uh, by Apollo Robbins. And the topic is a topic of attention. He's talking about how a model of attention, how our minds work, how we actually pay attention to the world around us. And he uses in the model, as he is discussing it, the idea of a little person who is in your head, who's sitting there at a desk and is taking in all the data from the senses that come in and deciding what to do with it. And of course, the person can get overwhelmed at times. Sometimes there's a distraction over here and I miss something that's happening over there. But the person can also be called away from that desk to retrieve some sort of memory, to go back and look internally, to look inside. And in that moment when you're looking inside, there's a brief moment where he's not paying attention to what's going on in the world around him. So there's times where we we have this moment of introspection and we start to miss what's going on around us, where our attention is on one thing and we miss what's happening um, in the world. And Apollo Robbins gets to exploit his model of attention on a regular basis because he's a professional pickpocket. Um, So he's in the business of making sure that people are paying attention to one thing while he comes up to them and in a sort of sly way does something completely different. Now he does this as part of like a show. Um, People will go to events where they are expecting him to be there. Um, He returns everything that he takes. He's not somebody who's stealing from people on the street. But he is in his own way a master of attention. And if you watch this particular TED Talk, it's really great. Because as he's talking through these things and this idea of attention, he gets the audience to start thinking about the things that they aren't paying attention to. So he like asks them to look at their phone and then says, okay, now what time is it? And, and most of them, even though they've just picked up their phone that has a clock on the front, want to go and like reach up again and go look at what time it was because that wasn't what you were doing in that moment. Or he says, you just looked at your phone. What's the icon in the lower right-hand corner of your phone? Do you remember that? Everybody has something down there. Are you certain about which one is there? And then he brings somebody from the audience up on stage and he gives a demonstration of how he is manipulating his attention and ends up taking from him his watch, the money from his pocket. Um, and all the time, the person doesn't even notice what's happening on around him. And so the audience thinks that they're in on this great trick where they're watching this person have their attention manipulated. And then, and I hate to spoil this because this does spoil the TED Talk if you were to watch this one, um, at the end of the show, he actually one of the things that he asked people to pay attention to is at the beginning of the show, he said, what am I wearing? What's my shirt and my tie? Like, did you notice that until I asked you? And everybody looks and they, they take mental note of what he's wearing. And then at the end of the show, he goes, what am I wearing again? And you find out that at some point during the show, he changed his shirt. (laughs) And almost nobody notices this. I did not notice it the first time I was watching. He integrates it in so smoothly. He, of course, has particular wardrobe that's easy to change quickly, but he's wearing something completely different. And if you aren't actually looking for the moment, you're paying so much attention to how he's manipulating the attention of the person on the stage that you don't realize what he just did was manipulate your attention so that you didn't notice a detail of what was happening. And now the Bible doesn't engage in intentional misdirection like a professional pickpocket. But there are times where we come to passages of scripture 
and we are in danger of having our attention so taken up by a question that we might find interesting, by, by something that is a detail of the text that is not really the main point of the text, that we are at risk of missing what is truly important, what is really happening right before our eyes. And I think that our gospel reading from today is one of the passages where that is a real danger. Because in our gospel reading from today, from Luke chapter 16, Jesus is telling this parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And there are some details in this parable that he is telling that are kind of fascinating to many of us because it seems to be addressing questions about what it is like after we die. And as humans, we naturally wonder and want to know what happens after we die. So there is this moment where it says that the poor man, Lazarus, is taken to Abraham's side, or as I'm sure that some of you who have older translations are used to calling it Abraham's bosom. And he's taken up to there, and I think that we can look at this passage and we can begin to ask the question, is this a place that we are going? A place of rest in between death and the resurrection? And it says that the rich man, he goes to Hades, which is the Greek name for the place of the dead. And he's in torment, and he can see across a chasm into the place where Lazarus has been taken up into paradise. And we are tempted to ask a question of, is this what it is like for us? But I don't think these are the questions that Jesus is attempting to answer in this passage. Jesus is not, in this particular passage, trying to give us a glimpse into what the afterlife looks like. And if we pay too much attention to that, if we're trying to use this passage to understand what is going to happen to us in that immediate moment after our death, we are likely to miss what is really happening in the passage. He's using an understanding of the afterworld, afterlife, that would have been familiar to most of those in the first century who he's speaking to. He's using the Greek framework, talking about Hades. The idea of being taken to, to Abraham's side is something that would have been familiar to Jews at the time. And he's using that to be able to make a different point that is actually one that is made, recurs over and over throughout Scripture. And he doesn't want us to miss it in this moment. The point is that God sees things differently than humans. In fact, he actually sets up this point that he is going to make. Right before the parable starts, in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, he's talking to the Pharisees who have just heard him speak about money. And they are actually mocking him because he has given an example of, of wealth and how uh, it needs to be something that is not the focus, that is not their, their pursuit. And they're mocking him, and he turns to them and he says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And this is the point that he is making with this parable, the point that he is reinforcing to us with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that what men value too often is focused on what they can see. They value things like wealth how rich someone is. They make judgment about a person based on the color of their skin. 
They look at someone in a position of leadership and assume that that must come along with holiness just because they're in the position of leadership. Or they see someone who is successful and assume that they have piety. And we might tell ourselves we don't see that way because we can come up with examples of people who are rich that we don't think are holy, that we don't think are good. But remember that this is specifically speaking about people within the covenant community of God people who are within the church. And it is still, to this day, so very easy for us to see those who have things go well for them as those who are blessed and therefore they must have done something right. Or we can flip things around the other way and say, if you do things right, then you will surely be blessed. Things will work out for you. And in our mind, this plants the seed that if that doesn't happen, for those who are poor, for those who are lowly, for those who come in and they don't have good hygiene because they're off the streets, they must have done something to bring themselves into that position. And God says, that's misdirection, most of it. You're looking at the wrong thing. But God never judges wrongly. God never is distracted by the things that we see. God looks into the heart. So Jesus tells the story of this man who by all accounts among the community of his people was probably in a place of great honor. Certainly he had wealth. It describes his clothing, his everyday clothes, the clothes that he wore all the time as being dyed purple, which in the ancient world, the purple dye came from a snail that was in the Mediterranean and it was difficult to gather and so it was extremely expensive. In fact, in the prayer shawls that the the rabbis were supposed to wear, they had to have a single blue thread. And this man's entire garment is made of that same kind of purple blue thread. It's, It's the richest garment that you can imagine. It's as lavish as you can possibly imagine. This is more than going out to the the fanciest store in New York City and downtown and buying the most expensive name brand suit you can find or the the most incredible designer ball gown. He's wearing this, something that you would think would be maybe for a very special occasion, possibly someone who's really wealthy might have that, but for him it's just his everyday clothes. That's just what he wears all the time. And the linen undergarments that he has are also the very finest thing that you could imagine in the ancient world. So underneath that purple, he has, he has linen, and that is also rare and imported from far away. It, it speaks to his wealth. And in the Jewish community, there was a diet that people would normally have, and then there were things that you would eat on feast days. When you look through all the laws of the Old Testament, in feast days, people would gather and they would, they would slaughter their animals. They would have the very best. They would, they would eat meat that they didn't have every day, but they would have it on certain days. And this man eats like that every single day. He's not just well off. He's not just sort of wealthy. He is incredibly wealthy. And there's nothing that indicates here that he's living beyond his means in some way. That he is in some way squandering his wealth and he's going to run out. He's just living according to what he has. He is just lavishly wealthy and living it up. But at his gate, there is a man who Jesus names Lazarus. He's a poor man. And it says that he just wishes he could get the scraps off of the rich man's table. Whatever's left over, thrown out, he just wishes and longs for that. We don't 
get much impression of what he's wearing, but we kind of get the idea that he's a beggar, probably in rags, wearing maybe some basic clothing. His body is covered with sores, which in addition to being uncomfortable and making him grotesque in appearance, also probably meant that he was considered unclean. He's cut off from worship. He is somebody who is, his companions are the dogs. And for those of us in our culture who are dog people, that doesn't sound so bad. But in first century Jewish culture, this is not the pets that we have. This is the street mongrels. Uh, These are the people that are considered unclean. They're, They're animals that are licking his wounds. They're tending to him in a way that nobody else will because nobody else will even touch him. But it also speaks to the lowness of his position. By the eyes of men, Lazarus in this story is barely human. He's just one of the dogs lying there at the gate. And yet, as the story goes on, it is Lazarus who receives great honor from God. Even before the moment where they die and they are carried away to their judgments, to their their heavenly or hellish destinations, there's a hint that Jesus gives us about the great honor he is according to this man Lazarus. Out of all the parables that Jesus told, This is the only one in which any of the characters is given a name. To be called by a name when you have otherwise been faceless, when you have otherwise been unknown, that is a great honor. It speaks to somebody who sees you and knows you. And his name means the one whom God helps comes from the the name in the Old Testament, the Hebrew name, Eliezer. The one whom God helps. And that proves to be true. Because when Lazarus and the rich man die, Lazarus is escorted by the angels to Abraham's side. What we should see this is not as a place name. The idea that he is giving us here by saying he goes to Abraham's side, it's the idea of him being seated at a feast, with the patriarch Abraham. So Lazarus, who was never able to feast during his life, is now sitting at a feast. And he's not just sitting at a feast. By being at the side of the host, he's seated in a place of honor. The one who was barely human by the standards of men is seated at a place of honor in the kingdom of God. Whereas the rich man When he dies, he goes to Hades. In Greek mythology, Hades was the place where all people who were dead went, whether they were good or bad. To different destinations were locations within it, but they all went to Hades. And here it's a place that he goes as a place of torment. He can see across the chasm to the place where Lazarus sits at the side of Abraham. And he calls to Abraham and he says, Abraham, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. Send Lazarus to come out to dip his finger in water and quench my thirst for just a moment because I am in horrible torment here in the flames. First of all, we get a hint here of something that's happening where the rich man still doesn't get it because he sees Lazarus at the table with Abraham and he's assuming he's been brought there as a servant. 
someone who Abraham is going to send to do his bidding, someone who can come and, and help him again feel a little bit better about his lot in life. Send Lazarus, make him come and do your bidding. He doesn't get it and understand at this moment that he is there not as the servant, but as the, as the guest of honor, that he is there brought to Abraham's side to have receive honor. He's missing it still, even after death in this story. There's also a bit of irony, a wordplay in the Greek here. Because the word for mercy is the same word that would be the root of the word for almsgiving. Which was a responsibility given to each of the, wealth, to the wealthy in the first century Judaism. And this is something that he had clearly neglected for his entire life because Lazarus sat at his gate. In fact, there's a little bit of, of condemnation here. He knows the name of this man. It's not like he didn't see him and recognize him. He knows who it is. He's the man who he walked by all the time to get into his estates. But we are never given any hint that he showed mercy, that he gave alms, that he cared for him with those scraps that were from his table. He kept everything for himself, all of the honor for himself, all of the wealth for himself. He called it all his own. Didn't share at all. Abraham tells him, no. Lazarus will not cross over. He can't. He says, you received good things while you were alive. And you've got the full measure of the good things that are coming to you. Lazarus received bad things while he was alive, but no more. Now he will have honor. Now he will receive what is truly good. And it's worth pausing here for just a moment in case we get distracted again to, to ask a question about what Jesus is saying. Is he implying some way that there's some sort of great leveling force where every person gets the same amount of good things. That if you've used them up now, then you're going to get less later. Some sort of weird sort of karma where it's either going to be all good for, it's going to be good for now, and then if you have good now, then you're destined for certain to have bad after your death. It's not what Jesus is saying. We actually have a hint within the parable itself, again, of that this can't be the case, because Abraham is there. Abraham is one who was during his lifetime wealthy, whom God blessed, that he trusted and followed after God, and God gave him great wealth through his time on earth, and yet here he is at the feast, the place of honor. So what is he saying? What is he try, point is he trying to get across? What failing did the man have? I'll borrow from Paul in his assessment of Abraham and say that Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed the words of God that were spoken to him. And he set out on his journey in faith that God would do what he said he would. And Jesus is telling the rich man, and he's telling the Pharisees who are listening, this is what is demanded of you as well. The word of God has been given to you. In fact, he's explicit about this just a little bit later. The rich man asks, well, if you can't save me, if you can't quench me, my thirst, 
then at least go and save my brothers. Send Lazarus, again, as your errand boy, send Lazarus to them, because if they, they see someone who has come from the dead, then surely they will believe. If they see this miracle, then they will believe, and they will turn away from this fate that I have. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And the rich man insists, no, they, they missed that, but if they will just have someone who comes from the dead, then they would listen to him. And he says, no, they wouldn't. This happens to us all the time, right? We want a word, a sign from God. Something more than this that is given to us as we're trying to make decisions about how to live and what to do, how to use our wealth. And God says, ultimately, I have given you my word. This is the standard by which you shall live. This is the standard by which you shall be judged. The rich man had our reading from Amos available to him. Certainly he couldn't use some excuse of lack of access to, to the scriptures and the readings because he wasn't wealthy enough. And that reading from Amos chapter 6 Verse 4 said, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Those who eat feast food all the time. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. Who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. those who can have great wealth and then look upon those who are destitute and feel no sorrow, take no action, that they are pleased with their own stat status in life and therefore that's good enough for them. There's condemnation for those who hoard their wealth. And it's not just because they haven't done enough good deeds or because being wealthy is in itself wrong. The question is, do they trust God? Are they doing with their wealth what he has asked them to? Are they using it in the way that he has instructed them? Our reading from 1 Timothy today said that those, let those who are rich not be haughty, well, let them use their wealth to do good works, to do good for others, to recognize that it's given to them as a gift. And this applies with everything we are given, whether it is our wealth, our time, our family, the talents and skills that we have. If you hoard it for yourself, then you are not doing with it what God has asked you to do. And what that reveals is a condition in your heart where you do not trust God. Because if you trust Him, you will use your gifts in the way that He has called you to use them. You will do with them what He has said to do, and you will trust and understand that the goodness, the richness that you desire in your life comes from that very act of trusting and obedience to Him. We have the Moses and the prophets. 
we have the testimony of the apostles. We even have one who is risen from the dead. There's irony in this as well in this story as Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. These same Pharisees who, as Jesus is telling the story, would probably say something similar, like if one rose from the dead, then we would believe, would see another man named Lazarus raised from the dead. And the answer to, their, to that happening, when they saw that happening, the response that they had was, let's make a plot to kill Jesus because he's too much trouble. And then Jesus himself rose from the dead. And the answer was not trust and belief in the works of God, not to believe that he was who he said he was, that he was doing what he said he would. The answer that they had was, let's cover it up. Let's, let's make the apostles not speak anymore. Let's hide it. Because this upsets us. It shifts the balance of power it means that all the rule following that we've done wasn't enough. It wasn't the right thing. Instead, it was this man. He's the one who was deemed righteous. He's the one who we see before God's eyes was lifted and raised up into a place of honor, even though we despised him. And we have witnesses who tell us of that. We have witnesses of one whom God raised from the dead. Will our hearts remain unmoved? Will we continue to make excuses for why we cannot or will not obey? Will we hoard what we have for ourselves? Or will we trust the one who has the power to raise a man from the dead, the one who can restore to us every good thing, the one who even if in this life we have many troubles, and we will, can lift us up and raise us up into a life everlasting, a feast that never ends. Will we trust him and obey? That is the question that this parable puts before us. That is the question that we are faced with when we see Jesus tell the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And let us not be distracted and turn aside to things that are smaller and less important. It's a question of your very salvation. Do you trust God? Because that is where our salvation comes from. Ultimately, What we all need to do is understand that we are those who stand before God having nothing. He sees through any pretense we put around ourselves, any pretense of our righteousness, any pride in our gifts, any status that we may hold. And he sees to our hearts. And in that place, all of us are like Lazarus poor, empty, those who need mercy, those who need God's help. But the good news is that the help has come. The hand is extended. God feeds us from his table. He doesn't hold it to himself. He gave his own body for us, that we could come before and know the grace that he gives 
the gift that he gives and how great it is. The call to trust and to obedience is not just one that comes as a live better, try harder. It's one that says you are one whom God helps. You are in need of mercy and God will fulfill your need. He will meet every need in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So as he places that call upon you to trust him, understand that the call to trust him is the call to receive mercy. Because when we come to him with open hands, when we come to him as beggars, find out that he knows your name. He knows exactly who you are. Exactly how poor you are. He knows your sin. He knows what you think about yourself. Really think about yourself. And he sees it. He sees you. He knows you. And you too, you trust God, are one whom God helps. Remember who you are. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.